welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 40. Uh, I have the privilege of being here today with Kirby Runyon, who is a planetary scientist. Kirby, would you like to talk a little bit more about uh, what it is that you do, your career, your life, to start us out? Yeah, Paul. Well, uh, as you said, I'm a planetary geologist, and so uh, I specialize in studying the evolution of landscapes on planets, moons, and asteroids throughout the solar system from images sent back by robotic spacecraft, mostly launched by NASA, uh, and some international agencies, and just trying to understand the science of landscapes. So, in uh, on the geology spectrum, you're kind of on the soft rock side. You're uh, you're watching sediment uh, change position on uh, many different planets. Well, that's part of it. I'm not just a sedimentologist. Uh, a lot of what I do is related to sand dune migration on Mars and also on Saturn's moon Titan. But I'm also interested in the emplacement of uh, the stuff that comes out of impact craters. We call it ejecta because it gets ejected mm -hmm. from inside a crater that was dug by a meteor hitting really fast. Um, but in general, I'm interested in pretty much any surface uh, manifesting process that occurs on the solid worlds of the solar system. So I'm not a one planet guy and I'm not a one process geologic guy. Uh, I kind of mm -hmm. like the full spread. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so once you ta start talking about things like uh, uh, crater ejecta, you can you can talk about that on any body with a solid surface in the entire solar system. Yeah, in fact, one thing I'm looking at right now is mapping the occurrences of what we call impact melt uh, for the large base for some of the large basins on the moon. So when you uh, impact a, a crater, uh, you know kinetic energy equals one half mv squared. A lot of that kinetic energy of the impactor gets turned into melting the rock. So immediately yeah. after uh, an impact, you can kind of come up with literally a lava lake uh, of melted rock in and around the crater. And when that uh, that molten rock cools, it records within it the age that it that it formed from the radioactive isotopes or radioactive elements in there. Mm -hmm. um, when you melt something and recrystallize it, as you know, Paul, uh, you reset the, the radioisotope radioisotopic age. Yeah. And if all we want them, to know, all the elements sort themselves out into the minerals they normally prefer. Right. Yeah. And then, um, and then those ratios get get screwed up kind of as the uh, radioactive element decays into its daughter products. Uh, but based on those ratios, we and based on the known uh, decay constants, we can figure out when that rock cooled. And for large basins like the Moon, uh, we can find where those cooled impact melts are, and we can go age date those and figure out when the biggest basins on the Moon formed, and by proxy when the largest basins on early Earth formed. And that's relevant for understanding the impact environment at the time the very first life on Earth started emerging. So I'm actually about to submit a paper on some of that right now, looking specifically at the Christium impact basin on the moon. And I'm really excited about this research. Ooh, yeah. So so really we're talking about, are we talking about the um, the, the late heavy bombardment period or are we talking about a period before that? No, we are kind of talking about that period from about 3.8 to 4 billion years ago. And one of the uh, controversies that's been rekindled, especially in the last couple of years, is did the late heavy bombardment actually happen? And if it did, to what extent did it happen? Um, right. And, uh, you know, there's this idea that uh, after the planets formed for about half a billion years, it was relatively quiet. And then there was a spike of really imp uh, intense bombardment for about 200 million years from 3.8 to 4 billion years ago. Um, and that's based on the ages of Apollo uh, moon rocks a and also from the Soviet lunar missions. But um, that has come under intense, uh, recent intense scrutiny as to whether we're actually getting good samples from around the moon or maybe we're just sampling basically one impact event, the formation of the Imbrium impact basin. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it turns out that the Imbrium impact is one of the younger ones on the moon and that it's kind of contaminated all, all the Apollo landing sites. And so that really we're just age dating one basin over and over and over again and not uh, basins from around the moon. Right. And so we really need to find samples that uh, really nail down um, uh, when uh, different basins were formed. And we need what's uh, called geologic provenance and context for that. And uh, your former colleague, or maybe a still current colleague from uh, Clive Neal from University of Notre Dame, is is certainly a leader in that field. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I like to think of Clive as a. Uh, I like to. <laughs> I like to think of Clive basically under any terms whatsoever. He's a hilarious uh, human being. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> when 
when when I was a graduate student, you know, being directed by him around uh, helping uh, students in undergrad lab, I mean, that that was my relationship. So it's hard to think of myself as his peer anyway. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he does he does fascinating work, absolutely. Yes, um, he's both a great guy a, and a great scientist. And tremendous and tremendous fun to go listen to at a conference, whether he's whether he's giving a formal talk or whether he's just uh, sitting around over a beer, preferably the latter, actually. But preferably over the latter. Actually, it's several beers when it comes to him. Well, then there's that. Yeah, I don't I don't <laughs> think I've ever unfortunately had had quite that pleasure. But uh, yeah, so that's yeah, that's so we're that's the thing. We're sort of still limited. Um, we're limited to bodies where we have uh, we, we have sample return <laughs> via natural or uh, artificial means. Right. As far as trying to date the uh, location, of course, if you happen to have a Martian meteorite or a lunar meteorite, uh, then your provenance problem becomes uh, different and even more difficult. I mean, we've we've never have we pinned down any more Mar- uh, lunar meteorites to actual impact areas? Has that no. is that possible? Uh, I think no. people have tried, but I think it's met with a lot of skepticism. I think to some extent they yeah. can maybe constrain the depth that it came from. But that still doesn't tell you where latitude and longitude-wise on the planet it came from. Right. Now, as regards lunar meteorites, my understanding is that they show no preferential clustering in that 3.8 to 4 billion-year-old age range. And so meteorites from the moon are presumably Mm. a more homogenous sampling of the entire moon. And yes, Mm -hmm. there was a higher impactor flux uh, from, you know, 3.5 to 4.5 billion years ago, but there was no spike around 3.8 to 4 billion years ago. And my understanding of the situation is is that that meteorite sampling is thought to be rather damning to the whole idea of an impactor spike uh, that's popularized or kind of contained in the late heavy bombardment, at least as it's commonly used. Yeah, 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 that would be a a big uh, shakeup of our understanding of the whole, I mean, we would start redating objects across the solar system, would we not, or at least the inner solar system. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our our understanding of crater counting would be would be strained yeah. rather, rather significantly. And I don't know if in some of your listeners, so so when we're talking about counting craters, we're not just like one, two, three. We're not like like just right. simply count. We're coming up with the statistics of crater sizes. That's what we mean by crater yeah. counting. Um, which, which is the only way that we can. I mean, it's it's one of the very few ways we have to come up with an estimate. And sometimes those estimates are bandied about as if they're a little bit more certain than they actually are, I think. Especially when talking um, to groups I mean, coming out of Germany. Like, yeah, there are no error right. bars on these measurements. Right. Yeah, they are perfect. Right. That was my very bad German accent, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I, and I've read a few papers about attempting to trace uh, Martian meteorites back to their own. How big is that data set, the lunar, lunar meteorite data set? How many lunar meteorites do we have? Oh, you know, I don't I don't know. And I'd be and off the top of my head. I'm not uh, going to hazard a guess, uh, okay. but it's 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 where it's statistically robust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I know we're somewhere above 100 Martians at this point, but okay. uh, I, I'm now a year or two out of date. Yeah, I, like to, yeah. I like to think about the existence of Earth meteorites on the moon. That's yeah. 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 Or Venus or Mercury. I mean, that'd yeah. be the most hilarious thing. <laughs> you know, but but, you know, most Earth rocks are younger than 500 million years old and most moon rocks are older than three to three point five billion years old. Uh-huh. And, and, and so there's this huge dichotomy in the age of the rocks between the two planets, Earth and moon. Yeah. And to really, I mean, what would be fascinating if, if like four billion year old Earth rocks could be found on the moon and if those could tell us something about the conditions on early Earth. Yeah, yeah, that would be fascinating. That really would be fascinating. And especially the implications for how the first life emerged and when the first life emerged, all towards getting towards answering that question of how did nature go from geochemistry to biochemistry? How did that transition occur? Right. Is the, is the RNA world hypothesis correct? Yeah. 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 There, there are so many of these ideas that we just I mean, they're tantalizing, but we just don't have the evidence. We, we just don't have the evidence to really and, make much of a judgment about them. And the yeah. Chinese, ironically, are helping to just starting to start address answering the question right now with the uh, orbit insertion successfully of Chang'e 4. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. It's a, keep track of that. Oh, yeah. Um, it, just in the last few days, it successfully entered lunar orbit and will be landing on the far side of the moon fairly shortly, 
first attempted lunar landing on the far side, the side that never uh, faces Earth. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, it's been it's been a quietly ex- exciting uh, last several months. I mean, a number of missions have either reached their destination or been launched. Right. Yeah. Um, and just in the last couple of days, Spaceship Two, depending on your definition of the altitude at which space starts, uh, it's the first, albeit suborbital, human space flight since 2011, since the space shuttle retired. Okay. Reaching an altitude of 51.4 miles above the 50-mile mark that uh, the United States government awards astronaut wings. There you go. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gosh. I don't keep up uh, with all of the the space news, even to you the know, degree, Paul, degree I that just I love, to. I just love space. I yeah. love space. Yeah. So I subscribe to a few, you know, like America Space or something like that. There's there's a couple of those outlets and Sky and Telescope that I, you know, th- those come up in my email, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't do a, a full cross section of it uh, yeah. very often at all, unfortunately. Except when I was preparing my planetary science lectures, which I haven't done since 2015. So ah. yeah, I'm getting a little stale. Yeah. Getting a little stale. When is uh um. New Horizons going to get to uh, its uh, Kuiper Belt object. Yeah, New Horizons, the New Horizons spacecraft will rendezvous with Ultima Thule, a.k.a. 2014-MU69, on January 1st, 2019, just in a couple weeks. I thought that was coming up. I thought it was January 1st, 2019, not 2020. Right, yeah, yeah so it's just in a couple weeks. In fact, closest approach will be at 12.33 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in the United States, um, so just so right as New Year's Eve celebrations are winding down, uh, uh-huh. you'll be able to tune into NASA TV, assuming the federal government hasn't shut down, and you'll get to right. uh, you'll get to celebrate the closest approach. Now, the first pictures won't come back until For about hours. 15 hours later. Uh-huh. Um, the, uh, we on the science team will have that, and then we'll publicly release that about 18 hours after that. So somewhere around midday or so on January 2nd. The public will see the first up-close pictures of the what will become the furthest explored world ever in the solar system. And liable to keep that uh, for a while. Uh, that record will not be broken for some time, if that's what you're referring to. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah uh, now, the New Horizons spacecraft has enough fuel to potentially do um, uh, what's called the trajectory correction maneuver, a TCM, and actually fly past another more distant Kuiper Belt object after this, pending NASA approval and funding. Uh, that um, extended extended mission proposal still has to be written and submitted to NASA, but tech- mm-hmm. from a technical perspective, it is a possibility, although a Kuiper Belt object would have to be discovered, probably yeah. using yeah. the Hubble Space Telescope. So. Yeah. Uh, now, now that can happen. The um, the New Horizons team is working very closely with the Hubble Space Telescope, with the Space Telescope Science Institute, just up the road in Baltimore, Maryland, mm-hmm. um, to get observing time to look for small uh, KBOs, Kuiper Belt objects, beyond Ultima Thule. And it's worth pointing out to your listeners that Ultima Thule is already a billion miles more distant than Pluto, in Which terms of uh, keeping. Fun. In terms of uh, distance from the sun, Pluto is around 30 to 32 astronomical units, the Earth-Sun distance. Ultima mm-hmm. Thule, uh, at the time of closest approach, will be at 43.5 AU from the sun. So, mm-hmm. you know, roughly 11 AU more distant than uh, than Pluto. And an AU is a little under 100 million miles. So That's right, 93 million miles. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's an awfully, awfully long way. Very far. Yeah. And and Voyager two just reached the heliopause. That was another uh, one of those recent events. We super exciting. Happy Colombo got launched, and Voyager two reached the heliopause. And yeah, it's been it's been quite a um, a couple of quarters here, I guess. For uh, yeah, so we now have so there's a couple ways of pointing that out. Now that Voyager two has uh, entered interstellar space uh, beyond the sun's heliosphere, New Horizons is the most distant functioning spacecraft within the sun's heliosphere. This uh, region of the galaxy dominated by outgassing from the sun, essentially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's liable to reach the heliopause. Uh, gosh, I wonder what the countdown for that is. Well, it's be a lot faster than the Voyagers overall. No, no, but... it's actually slower than the Voyagers. Um, really? Yeah, Voyager one is traveling at 3.6 astronomical units per year, and New Horizons is traveling around 3.1 uh, oh, okay. or so. So it's slower. Yeah. Uh, and uh, was it faster at launch though? Was that yes. the difference? Yes, that's yeah. the caveat. Is that New Horizons is the fastest launched spacecraft? Although okay. because both Voyager one and two had multiple giant planet encounters, uh, gravity yeah. says they're actually traveling quite a bit faster. 
New Horizons um, just had a gravity assist from Jupiter, right? That's correct. In twenty in two thousand seven, um, yeah. So uh, and and the the, gra- the encounter at Pluto was not significant to really. Aff- I mean, Pluto's gravity is so weak that New Horizons really did not get a speed boost from Pluto. <laughs> no, um, you you wouldn't notice. No, you would not, barely notice. You would not notice that. Um, yeah. But yeah, New Horizons has enough electrical power to last through 2038, we're fairly confident, uh, and to a distance of around 100 AU, so not far enough really to get to the edge of the heliosphere, to reach the heliopause. So unfortunately, oh. from a technical capability perspective, I think it's doubtful that the New Horizons spacecraft will be able to function into interstellar space. Okay, okay. Are we are we not getting uh, this the same quality plutonium that we had available in the seventies, or is it just the just the difference in design parameters? No, I think it's just less plutonium. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, so. Okay. New Horizons just had. I mean, it's a smaller spacecraft, not as many instruments, uh, um, and so at the new at Ultima Thule flyby on January first, New Horizons will be operating with 189 watts of electrical power, and mm-hmm. I think that the Voyagers just launched with much more plutonium, frankly, than New Horizons did. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and if you're launching Voyager 2 and you're you're sending it on the whole grand tour, you're like, heck yes, I'm putting every instrument I possibly yeah. can on this bus. <laughs> those, those, those spacecraft are bristling Christmas trees of ornaments. Yeah. So yeah. They, they started off with much higher power requirements than New Horizons ever had. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What, what, uh, this is almost getting too far afield, but I was just like, what what instruments are still uh, functioning? I mean, obviously we're getting we're getting transmissions back from them, so their radio is their high gain antenna, I guess, must be. Uh, yes, the, the yeah, those are working. The cameras are not. It's worth pointing out the cameras <laughs> and spectrometers are not still functioning. Those are still too power hungry, and there's probably nothing around the Voyagers to image, anyways. Um, you know, I I don't know offhand what the names of the instruments are. I know the uh, the APL built uh, low energy charge particle i think lecp detector is still working um and a number of other particles and fields instruments are still working the magnetometers are still working i believe Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and that's crucial for understanding the magnetic field um in that transition region from the sun where the sun dominates the particle and field environment to where interstellar space dominates the same thing All, all of those instruments would help uh help gauge that Man. But I'm just yeah. a lowly geologist, just a lowly rock hound, so I wouldn't know about such things. <laughs> exactly, plasma physics and all plasma that. Plasma physics, stuff. I, I don't, I don't venture right. into that. Except but, to talk above about our pay grade, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know about my pay grade, but uh, those people are down the hall for me, and I chat with them around the uh, Keurig machine. There you go. There you go. Yes, the modern equivalent of the water cooler. What's this water cooler? I drink coffee. <laughs> That's right. Coffee is more important. Or as, as Clive Neal would say, uh, you know, that you need to inject it straight into your veins. That's right. That's right. Oh, gosh. Yeah. I miss Clive. I miss having him down the hallway. Um, I don't necessarily miss the article that he had taped to his laboratory door about the guy who died of uh, hydrogen uh, hydrofluoric acid poisoning. But uh, oh, that sounds awful. Did he put it in his coffee? Uh, no, no, it was, it was sort of a salutary warning that, uh, he didn't need to lose any higher than that's nece- statistically necessary a number of, uh, graduate students, whether it's digesting or rocks. Oh man. Okay. Somebody, somebody out in Australia apparently was uh, doing a fly by night operation that somehow involved, uh, hydrofluoric acid. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, he spilled a little bit of on it, a little bit of it on its, on his skin and that's all it takes. Oh man. That's, that's, that's rough. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Um, yeah, well, that's that was really salutary. Uh, no, <laughs> warning, listeners. This is this is your uh, your take home public service message for today. Uh, hydrofluoric acid is only for extremely well protected professionals to handle. Uh, do not attempt this at home. Do not I'll attempt to that. digest rocks and uh, turn them into silicon tetrafluoride uh, on your own. <laughs> we don't we don't recommend it. It's great, though. I mean, you know, it, uh, it, 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 there, there are things that uh, there, there's just nothing else that'll touch it. The way that uh, hydrofluoric acid will, uh, will get, get rid of all of that uh, un, unwelcome silicon, so you can uh, look at the trace elements. Is that what Clive likes to do in the lab? Uh, that was, uh, I think, back in the mid aughts when I was at Notre Dame. That was uh, one of the things I think he was doing. Ah, okay. He was, uh, he was working on, gosh, he had some strange projects. He, he had uh, platinum group elements uh, in roadside dust, I, I remember, was um, a project that was going on in his lab. You know, all oh. the while, you know, obviously, as, from, as you could tell from our discussion, he makes his bread and butter from uh, planetary science. But uh, 
yeah, he, he, he would not turn people away with uh, um, other interesting geochemical uh, questions to resolve. Huh. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so you have an inside, I mean, you're, you're at the, um, I mean, you're, you're in a hub of NASA activity there. And of course, you know, it's kind of convenient that, uh, guns is where it is. It's probably not coincidental that that's the case. Right. Um, so in terms of the culture, so, you know, there's different, you know, we've, we've talked, uh, obviously the point is because, uh, you know, science and faith, and we've, uh, we've actually just finished a couple of interviews with, uh, a more uh, terrestrial-oriented uh, geoscientist. I mean, you know, depending on how strictly you interpret the geo and geoscientist. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, so so that's one one corner of of geoscience and planetary geoscience. What is your take on sort of the culture of science today, with respect to religion, re- with respect to uh, Christianity specifically? Well, I can comment on uh, the work environment and the environment at conferences. Uh, and that is largely dominated by the fact that there's almost no mention of religion or God whatsoever. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's not hostile, fortunately, I have found. Um, mm-hmm. I, in my office, I do have an Eastern Orthodox icon of Christ uh, making, the, making the, uh, the Cairo blessing uh, with his hand. Uh, it's a classic uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, portrayal of, of Jesus. Um, no one's really commented on it one way or another. Um, I have a number of um, Jewish friends who uh, I feel safe discussing religion with, and they're fine with me, of course, having an icon of Jesus there. Um, yeah, I, um, I'm, I feel blessed that I've not been persecuted, at least to date, at least to my knowledge. Uh, I don't know what I've been left out of, what conversations I've been left out of, so, so I can't comment to that. Um, but at least what I the data I have collected on it in my own personal life is uh, has not been antagonistic. Usually it doesn't come up. Um, it often comes up it, in the context of, hey, how was your weekend? Oh, it was fine. I went to church. I went and saw some other friends. I did some other stuff. It comes up in that context, and that's usually it. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, at the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference, a number of us who meet together in a very informal group called Christians in Planetary Science. And it's open to anyone who identifies as some flavor of Christian or who doesn't identify as Christian but is interested or, or potentially interested. Um, and so we get together for typically a meal on the Sunday before the conference starts, uh, and, and we discuss items of interest, uh, and that's, that's about it. Um, some people also gather to pray. Um, so there is a small... Uh, I don't know if you'd call it a support network or just a very small community of people who uh, of people who identify in the as some stripe of Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, all the various flavors, sub flavors within those categories um, uh, and, and who uh, explore the cosmos from a planetary perspective. Um, it often I often have not had people come and want to discuss Christianity at length with me um, However, I have had the privilege on a number of occasions of uh, teaching an adult Christian education class at my church on science and Christian faith. My uh, priest has been very supportive of uh, encouraging me to teach that, and it's been met with a lot of warm, positive reception. Actually, one thing does come to mind, and that was, I think it was two years ago, uh, at the Geological Society of America meeting uh, that, that meets every fall, and this was held uh, two years ago in Denver, there was a... Uh, uh, an oral presentation session on um, engaging religious members of the public in science, specifically geology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the only planetary geologist presenting there, uh, and I did actually use my church teachings as a case study for one successful way to engage non-scientists who are religiously minded, specifically uh, a stripe of evangelical Christians within the Anglican Church uh, on issues related to science and faith. And that was very positively positively received, and I had a lot of very engaging follow-up conversations with both Christians and non-Christians interested in uh, in in my uh, teaching experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I've I've kind of found it. I mean, do you get the sense, or do you think that I'm completely off, completely off base in the sense that I found as a geoscientist, I get the sense that my fellow geoscientists get a lot of the sense that you know, that I, that I get from contemplating the divine, that they get that sense of awe um, and of being in the presence of something much larger than themselves from the subject matter that we study? Um, 
I don't, unfortunately, my experience has been that most people do not exude or talk about a sense of awe almost at all. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a few exceptions. On the New Horizons mission, uh, that uh, the principal investigator, the PI of that is uh, Alan Stern out of the Southwest, Southwest Research Institute. Now, to my knowledge, he is not a professing Christian, but he does have a sense of awe for exploring the cosmos. And to that effect, he actually had a uh, folk musician come in and who, who writes songs, who wrote a song about Pluto and is now writing a song about this next ex phase of exploration in the Kuiper Belt of Ultima Thule, where he had a song and he actually had a number of us on the New Horizons team uh, sing along using words something like, it's amazing, I'm amazed. Uh, we kept repeating that. Um, it is amazing, I am amazed. And we repeated that a number of times. And his intention mm -hmm. is to work that uh, recording into his eventual song that he releases. Um, mm -hmm. And I really appreciated that Alan seems to get the sense of awe that I think is appropriate for exploring the cosmos. I get, in, in being a member of the nonprofit organization, the Planetary Society, I, I get more of a sense of that awe from people involved with that. Um, it, I certainly get a sense of awe out of exploring the universe and sending robotic spacecraft to far-flung worlds within and sometimes outside the solar system. Um, but I don't get a sense of awe one way or another, oftentimes from a lot of my professional colleagues. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I feel I bring to the table because I, I, I'm enthusiastic about this, this whole mm -hmm. business of exploration I'm enthusiastic about. And the sense of awe that I get is something that I deliver myself, but it's both about the universe and it's about the God who created the universe that we get to study, uh, as scientists. So personally, my sense of awe comes from both the cosmos and the creator of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's the fascinating thing. And then and then if you start to think about them both at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, one thing that I sometimes will allow my brain to melt down about is is thinking about who created God. And of course, we come back to I think it was uh, Augustine. Well, he is the unmoved mover. He is right. the one entity that requires no creator because he has always existed, because he necessarily exists. And nothing else that we know of can claim that necessary that, that necessity of existence. But I yeah. okay, I, I have words for that, but I still don't have an intuition around that. And yeah. I, I mean it's like, why does God have to exist? Why does he exist? Why doesn't something else exist or something else exist? Or right. and and I'm coming at this from an Orthodox Christian perspective. Like, okay, he's he's Trinitarian. He's three persons yet in one being, and he is eternally, necessarily existent. Mm -hmm. And Paul, I still don't get it. That still doesn't yeah. make sense with me. Yeah. If we go back ten quadrillion years, if that's even a if that's even a measurable quantity, since right. that's all in the universe, there God is. He's still there. He still right. existed. Um what, right. like was he what was he doing? This sounds right. boring. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the difficult thing. I mean, the unmoved, unmoved mover and the necessary being, I believe that goes all the way back to Aristotle. And the, okay. it was a major theme of the of, of medieval theologians. And in fact, you know, one of the things that the high Middle Ages did was was actually take Augustine, who was more of a Platonist and interweave hmm. him into the into the Aristotelian um, framework they were they were bringing over from the Arab world um, hmm. that, who had, who had elaborated it and made some improvements and some arguable, arguably not improvements in any case. Um, but yeah, I mean, Augustine makes the fascinating point that God is outside time and that, you know, that there's a finite amount of time, whatever it is, 16, 15, 17 billion years. And that there's simply just, you know, God is eternity. And yet well, what I, I get hung up on the whole, you know, it's it's hard to picture God outside time and not picture him as being frozen, which would be mm. ridiculous because that would be less than our existence going through time. I mean, he's superior to it. You know, I I don't know that I buy that God exists independently of time. He exists independently of our time and our universe. That's for sure. Right. But um, as the Christian astrophysicist Hugh Ross points out, it's very plausible that God exists in the equivalent of perhaps at least two equivalent dimensions of time that could be mutually perpendicular, such that you could, you know, where the where the two timelines cross, 
uh, at an infinitesimal point, you could spend eternity along one timeline while still existing at a moment in time on the other timeline. And, and, and Hugh Ross posits this uh, as one way that God could spend an infinite amount of time with one person, one at a time, uh, at one point of human history, and still be able to li- – basically, how does God listen to the prayers of 7 billion people all at the same time? This is one plausible and probably wrong but interesting explanation for that. <laughs> exactly. That's all we can do is, is come up with you know plausible, probably wrong, and, and right. you know, just lay it out there. Yeah, right, right. that would be, that'd but, be fascinating to read some so, of that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, Hugh Ross uh, defines, he tries to define time uh, in which the realm in which cause and effect relationships occur, in which the cause precedes the effect. I don't know, though, but that sounds almost self-referential, though, if you're talking about the cause preceding the effect. Still, it is still a realm in which cause and effect relationships occur. I think God does exist within that kind of realm, but not with, but in a non-overlap, in, a, in, an, in an interacting but non-overlapping realm of the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, All that he, to say... That the universe is 13.799 billion years old, and God has existed outside that for eternity. Right. Yes. There, there, it's, whatever it is, his existence is, you know, doesn't have limits, doesn't right. have quantitative limits that we can uh, prescribe or ascribe right. to it. And, you know, yeah. my, my, it occurs to me that whether someone believes in God or not, they must exist or they must believe in some kind of unmoved mover. You've got to posit something, some something transcendent apart from the universe to explain the universe. For Stephen Hawking, that appeared to be the law of gravity that was an unmoved mover that was necessarily existent. Right. If you have a law of gravity, you must have laws of mathematics and logic that have to right. exist independently of the universe and that have been eternally existent. Um, that's fine. He's just what he's really doing, though, is ascribing he's just divine taking the quality. question back a step. Yeah, that's, that's endemic. And you have you're talking to uh, you know to to Hawking or to Lawrence what is his name Lawrence Krauss or yeah I mean and it's it's clearly you just you just pushed back a step well why do these laws of physics exist that allow you know why does this quantum field exist that allows particles and antiparticles to uh, you know to come into existence right that's Stephen, that's not nothing in the well, philosophical sense I don't know that it's pushing the question back it's just taking a smaller view of of lowercase g God if I may. He's, right. he's positing the existence of a God. To him, that God, or, or the quality of God that we're talking about, this eternal self-existence, is just the laws of math and physics, which is a much smaller God than the Trinitarian Christian God. That's um, also true. So I, so I don't think you can truly be an atheist. You, you must believe or posit the existence of some lesser God. You, you must posit the existence of God or some lesser version of God. Yeah. Yeah. And to some people, yeah. that lesser version of God is just the laws of math and physics. Right. And that you, somehow you have to explain, you know, consciousness, but, you know, it's essentially you go by, you, you go on assuming, well, there must be some solution. It's, there must be some materialist solution to the question of consciousness. And if there is any such thing as free will, there's materialist uh, explanation of that as well. And you go about your business. Ugh. Or for Stephen but Hawking, yes. there was no free will, but it wasn't. We were we were we were slaves to the laws of chemistry and physics, but since we couldn't understand how complex these relationships were, it was just as well to go about assuming that free will did exist. So for Stephen Hawking, it didn't exist, but we couldn't act any other way than to assume that it did. Right. Yes. Yeah. Now there's there's only so far you can go before you start talking to yourself. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Ah, but that's, uh, uh, we start to branch off into the question of uh, science versus philosophy. Did you have any uh, philosophy of science in your your educational background? Not in my formal education, no. Just in the the books I picked up to read that I care to read, and in conversations with people like you who are smarter than me. Yeah, that was... um, it was one of the great things at WashU is that uh, I remember the capstone course, I believe it was Doug Lienz and Jill Pasteris taught it. And they brought, you know, they brought in some some um, philosophy of science and also history of geology, which is, of course, you know, a fascinating subject in itself. And mm. That that whole question of the scientific revolution, the Cunian uh, revolutions that you can identify in the history of geology, plate tectonics being the most recent and most, you know, obviously easily defined one. Um, but there were there were others, especially in the 18th and 19th century. Well, I mean, they all would have been in the 18th and 19th century, basically. Yeah. Well, maybe that's not true. Well, um, in general, I feel geology is one of the younger younger physical sciences. 
it's it's derivative. You need a you need a considerable amount of physics and chemistry before you can start doing geology with any you know anything more than a sort of uh, very crude associational. Well, I see this in this type of environment. Well, that's nice because you're just looking at Scotland. But if you went over here to Argentina, <laughs> you would find that things are a little different. <laughs> um, and when people did go to there. Argentina, they found they were different. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, but yeah, that's an and, and also some Kuhn and Popper, you know, sort of philosophy of science in there as well to, to watch, you know, to realize that science is a is a human undertaking and, and to think about that. But also, you know, the question of what are we even doing and what is I mean, clearly we're making we're going somewhere that I mean, that's almost too obvious. But of course, things that are too obvious are the sort of things that uh, you can make a lot of uh, you can sell a lot of books saying aren't the case. Um, yeah. But that's. Yeah, I mean that's that's the great uh, controversialist uh, strain. I mean it's it's not unique to the contemporary world, but certainly the West of the last couple of centuries has been, uh, you know, always ready to to, to the, listen to the next person tell us that everything we know is wrong. In right. the words of that great Weird Al song, "Everything you know is wrong." <laughs> everything you know is wrong. Up is down, short is long, and black is white. Up is down, yeah. And everything you thought was just so important doesn't matter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's that's the story of Western intellectual history, um, <laughs> but um, so yeah. So you mentioned uh, in passing, but if you could talk a little bit more about um, have you have you are you still in the uh, the faith um, the the Christian ecclesial uh, community that you started your life in? Uh, similar, but a little bit different. Uh, I was raised in a denomination called the Free Methodist Church, a little branch of Protestantism there. Uh, I no okay. longer identify as Free Methodist. In fact, I was uh, went through formal confirmation in the Anglican Church, um, mm-hmm. which I find to be satisfying on a number of intellectual, emotional, and spiritual levels, um, both in terms of its historical relevance, uh, its simplicity of essential doctrine, uh, and outworking of personal and corporate faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I see uh, a lot of diversity, and within that diversity, a lot of unity in the Anglican Church, and I'm really drawn to that. Uh, in my particular parish and in my particular life, there is a confluence of sacramental slash liturgical, uh, a, a sacramental slash liturgical stream of Christianity combined with an appropriately dosed evangelical component combined with also a charismatic component, a very uh, a consciousness and awareness and a participation of the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Mm-hmm. How could how would you define the evangelical component? <sighs> to me, evangelicalism is an emphasis, not that other streams of Christianity don't have it, but it's an emphasis on the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, okay. But where I and I see that worked out very well. Also, in in other branches of Christianity, including uh, the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox churches, especially among both mystics and charismatics, um, Mm -hmm. where that personal relationship with Jesus seems very personal, Um, not personal in the sense that you don't share it, but personal in a sense of really like talking about Jesus as though he's just Joe down the road and you just had coffee with him. It's Mm -hmm. it's this familiarity with Jesus that I find Mm -hmm. so appealing um, and that I actually find worked out best among mystics and charismatics, mm-hmm. who themselves may not identify as, as evangelical, which is ironic. Um, right. But that which evangelic that which evangelicalism says is, is so important, this personal relationship with Jesus, I find being worked out very well among people who may or may not actually identify as evangelical. Right. Right. I mean. Yeah, you could uh, obviously from a Catholic perspective, you know, I'm sitting here, you know, going through a list of, you know, Teresa Lisieux, Teresa of Avila, um, mm-hmm. you know, whoever, however many. And again, you know, mystics and uh, saint, saint. But again, that, that personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah, that, that that's, you know, and that's and that's, yeah, the the, the drifting away from. Well, the, and then the necessary drifting away from the sort of institutionalized idea of religion, which. Yeah, there, there's there's an institutionalism mm-hmm. as opposed to you know institutions. Institutions exist for reasons, but yeah. institutionalism, yeah, the sort of uh, the institutionalized um, evangelicalism I do not closely identify with. Usually, um, yeah. um, people like um, Saint Mother Teresa, um, 
in some sense, she was evangelical because she knew Jesus intimately. Yeah. So it seems at least. Uh, yet yeah. I don't think she would identify as, yeah, I'm an evangelical Christian. I don't think those words would come out of her mouth. Um, but, uh-huh. but. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, but it'd be, it'd be a question I would, I would love to pose to someone who knew her. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. It would, it, it, I bet it would depend on the context, but of yes. course. Uh, when 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 news outlets like CNN talk about evangelical Christians, <laughs> I, they're, right. they're usually not talking about me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and what was the you know, so you talked about the charismatic element, the evangelical element, which are not necessarily uh, you know they're not necessarily orthogonal to one another. They, no. they, there's some overlap there. Oh sure. Um, what was what was the first element that you mentioned? Uh, 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 sacramental slash uh, liturgical. But liturgical, yeah, like sacramental, understanding the importance uh, of the sacraments that that the Holy Spirit through the church has given us over the millennia. Um, And and especially the sacrament of the Eucharist that that Christians typically celebrate uh, once a week. Um, And that I find a very satisfying confluence of uh, of the divine person of Jesus and the divine person of the Holy Spirit coming together in a tangible way. in a tangible way, which for me this morning, we're recording this on a Sunday, uh, I had the Eucharistic, Eucharistic host and wine. And I was very, uh, I was reflecting very much on, wow, this is, this is Jesus with me. This is Emmanuel. Um, in, in, in the book of Isaiah, uh, in one of the uh, famous messianic prophecies, um, and his name shall be called uh, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, Prince of Peace. Uh, his name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And yet for Christians who understand the importance of the sacraments for sacramental Christians, um, taking the Eucharist is God with us. Yeah. 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 So that, I mean, and so in a sense, that's a bit of a, what has been called sort of a high church, um, element. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, two weeks ago, uh, I was at a non-denominational charismatic church in Los Angeles called expression 58 church. And, um, very different from the Anglicanism that I'm accustomed to. Um, and during their hour of worship music, they passed, (laughs) they passed around a cardboard box with these, uh, communion elements in them, which looked like coffee creamers, but there were two, uh, like, uh, foil wrappers on top. You do one foil wrapper. There's a communion host. And underneath that, you can drink, uh, the wine, which was not wine and neither was it grape juice. It was grape Kool-Aid, but it was how they celebrated communion. And I went ahead and celebrated communion with them, and it was great. I'm, uh-huh. <laughs> this is a little bit unusual. This is not how I'd go about doing it, but I'm going to, you know, if there's a chance that this is valid, I'm going to go for it. And it was very <laughs> worshipful, and I feel I encountered Jesus in that, in that moment. So, so great. Yeah. Um, yeah. To be fair, yeah. it might not have been a cardboard box. It might have been actually a, like a tasteful, like, uh, like uh, uh, pass-the-plate type uh, uh, offering plate that they pass it out. But still, uh, very different way of taking communion that I'm used to, but I went ahead and went with it. Um, so I don't think they would necessarily identify as a sacramental church, except that maybe once in a while they do celebrate communion. Right. Still. You happen to be there on that day. Right. Right. Um, of course, uh, they, they do celebrate the community of baptism, which most Christians are agreed for, uh, for a valid, both Catholics and Protestants agree that a valid baptism has two things. It involves water and it involves the trifold name of God, Father, Son, Mm -hmm. and Holy Spirit. And that is a valid baptism. Um, um, I, I tend to, I'm a, loosely a Protestant. I'm Anglican, but I like the Eastern Orthodox perspective that, well, Catholics, there's more than seven sacraments, and well, Protestants, there's more than two sacraments. There's many sacraments. There's many expressions of grace um, that Mm -hmm. God uses, and I Mm -hmm. I find that beautiful and compelling. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, I would agree with you, a Roman Catholic, that, that marriage is a sacrament. Right, right. Well, and, and there's a, you know, there, there's a bit of a question of definition there. I mean, there's, I mean, that, that is the kind of, you know, whether you like it or whether you dislike it, that's, that's a Roman feature to, you know, sort of lay things out and say, all right, well, there are seven sacraments. Then we have a lot of sacramentals and, you know, there's a, there's a distinction that, you know, we, we threw an extra name in and yeah. It's sort um, of like, is it a planet or is it planetary? Is it a sacrament or is it right. sacramental? It's there like that. New Horizons is flying by Ultima Thule, which is 30 kilometers wide. It is not a planet. It's, right. a, it's an icy any... asteroid or giant comet. It's a Kuiper Belt object. And yet it is a planetary encounter of a, by a spacecraft. Yes. It is not a planet, but it involves the adjective planetary. 
Right. Because it's because it's in orbit around the sun, and therefore it, it, it's some crunchy object. It's a yes, it's a solid crunchy object in orbit around the sun, and therefore we're having a planetary encounter. Right. That's right. A, it's a planetary state of mind. Yeah. yeah. So so that brings my faith and my science together. <laughs> right. <laughs> very closely <laughs> instead um, of to the parallelism um know, I, I was in a, a worship setting uh in a friend's living room a few months ago uh and the thought crossed my it was a, it was a it was a hymn sing where we 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 have a hymnal we we call a hymn out of a book and then brad plays it on the guitar and we mm. sing it um very very much like my free methodist upbringing but um the thought occurred to me that as much as i like space god likes it even more because <laughs> he made it right and he, and he made an awful lot of it. He made he made a lot more of it than he made of Earth. Yeah. And yeah. it occurred to me that that's one way that I can relate to God is um, one way that I relate to people is on common interests. And some people that I like and talk to space is a common interest. And that's one way that, you know, we can have a relationship where we can talk about it. But it's really not about the, the space. It's about the relationship with the person. And. I, it occurred to me that that's one way that God shows his love to me. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. To me, that's head knowledge, but it's, you know, I'm numb to those words. It doesn't have a much heart knowledge for me. I don't feel that love mm-hmm. much. Um, and so to some extent, God has to dumb down his love to lesser expressions of love so that I can actually get it and feel it. Yeah. Um, one of those ways is space. So I'm excited about the New Horizons flyby of uh, Ultima Thule, and God's excited about it, too. I mean, he knows what Ultima Thule is all about because he made it through natural processes that we can study. But I'm going to find out in just a few weeks what Ultima Thule is like, and he's excited for me. Yeah, indeed. It's it's a very nice uh, uh, present for the Christmas season, as it were. Yeah, and I'm not just excited about Ultima Thule and New Horizons. I'm involved with other missions as well. I mentioned my my research on the moon with you. That's I'm, I'm a postdoc uh, postdoctoral researcher on the uh, lunar reconnaissance orbiter, which has been orbiting the moon since 2009. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also on the high-rise camera orbiting Mars. It's a spy satellite basically orbiting Mars, giving us really high-resolution images. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also on the science team for the upcoming um, meta instrument, the Mars Environmental Dynamics Analyzer, which is an instrument on the Mars 2020 rover that's going to launch in 2020 but land on Mars in 2021 or crash on Mars in 2021. But, you know, here's hoping it actually lands. There's always that possibility. Or yeah. blowing up on the launch pad in 2020, but hopefully launching. Yeah, let's let's hope we avoid that. Yeah, it's, it's launching on an Atlas V rocket, which has a perfect launch record. So, you know, it should go it should go fine. Atlas V. Uh, that seems like a high number. I don't remember there. Uh, of course, again, I'm not the, I'm not as much of a guru of these things as you are. How long have we been running Atlas Fives? Does this go all the way back to the 60s and 70s, or is that a newer? Atlas Five since the mid 2000s. Okay. Uh, I yeah. think the Falcon 9 has just surpassed it in number of launches. Mm-hmm. However, the Falcon 9 does have two failures. Yeah. Uh, one o- only one in-flight failure though. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But but still, it's launching on a great rocket. Probably will, probably will go great. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no reason. Uh, we'll, we'll worry about it when there's actually cause to worry about it. There are, right. there are other right. people to do that for us. Well, Jesus said, "Don't worry about your life. How your rocket will fly. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things." Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. As uh, a, a counselor of mine once said a few years back, you know, if you, if you just, you know, if you, whatever you're worried about, you know, fine, go ahead, blow it out, catastrophize it to the maximum <laughs> possible. You know, you're going to die and you're going to be in the hands of your heavenly father. I'm like, <laughs> I try to take comfort in that. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what happens, no matter what happens, we're all going to die. Yeah. But it's OK because we're in the hands of God. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's, that's a fairly <laughs> Chestertonian observation. I mean, there's, there's nothing more dangerous than being in life. You're constantly in danger of dying. <laughs> <laughs> but it's OK. But it's OK. Yes. Yeah, this is very true. Yeah, very yeah. True. You know, uh, when uh, the Mars rover Curiosity was landing in 2012, you know, there's that there's that um, communications latency because no signal can travel faster than the speed of light. And so our knowledge of the state of the rover was was happening. Uh, we were getting updates or JPL was getting updates uh, at, at the speed of light from the radio transmissions. 
And then, of course, there's that seven minutes of terror where the plasma sheath around the reentry vehicle, you probably couldn't transmit radio signals through there. Anyway, no. so we just did not know what was happening. And I was praying that whole time. I'm like, oh, yeah. God, please let this land safely. Jesus, yes. your Holy Spirit, direct this thing down to the surface of Mars safely. Please, Jesus, do this. Yeah. And I got this peace in my spirit, like, Kirby, it's going to be okay. The rover's going to land. And I'm like, uh. oh, my goodness. I just got a message faster than the speed of light because God told me. I mean, I think God might have told me, but, you know, <laughs> but like that was kind of a cool thought. Like, OK, the Holy yeah. Spirit just gave me this piece that it landed OK. And there's no way we, I could actually know that. Right. I mean, yeah, that was my experience. Maybe it was my brain psyching me out. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit. I'll leave it as a mystery. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. But that's that's the thing. You don't you don't get to know any of these things for certain. That's that's just not how it works. Well, it's faith, but the, the one of the funny things is is that faith is the starting point for science because we have exactly. to believe that the universe is knowable. We have to believe on faith that the laws of physics are the same here as they are elsewhere, and that's borne out by evidence. But we also have to believe on faith that empirical evidence is the way to find out about the universe. Yeah, that it's going to go somewhere. I mean, you need faith and you need a certain amount of hope as well, which is actually, if anything, even more difficult for me than faith. Mm. The uh, the the amount of difficulty I had during my PhD, you know, expressing, you know, hoping that if I mixed up enough different uh, mixtures of uh, uranium and different uh, flavors of uh, oxalate, oxalate and different cations, that I would eventually come up with something not known to science. And I did actually manage a few of them, but that was just it was just such a hurdle. I mean, you can go all the way back to you know Little League for heaven's sake, you know, to go out there knowing that I have a considerably less than 50% chance of hitting the ball. Ah, <laughs> ah, ah. Oh, that, was, that was so difficult. <laughs> uh, just, it, it's, it's difficult for some of us to face. We, want, we crave that certainty. Yeah. Um, we, we really do. Um, and uh, that's one of the things I guess I feel like I have in common with, uh, with my students when I was, you know, when I was teaching that, uh, yeah, that, you know, we, we live in a world that's so safe. We're brought up in a world that's so safe and we can count on so many things. We don't get used to, you know, going out, you know, faring forth and accepting the fact that sometimes it's just not going to work properly. And that's, yeah. But it's okay. It's, yeah, it, that's the thing. It's, it's, in, it's in someone else's hands and the success and failure is... Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing, you know, you don't... You, it's not irrelevant, but it's also not, you know, it's just not worth the anxiety. I mean, ultimately, it's it's just not worth the anxiety. It's not right. worth the anxiety at all. No, it's not. Um, and I'm learning that. And uh, as as I'm moving more and more in the whole charismatic stream of Christianity, where there's this this back and forth conversation between the Holy Spirit of Jesus and you and or, or me. Um, as thoughts come to mind, you know, Scripture says that we have the mind of Christ. And elsewhere in Scripture, it says that all the mysteries of God and knowledge of God are hidden in Christ. So if there's an overlap between the knowledge of God being hidden in Christ, and if there's an overlap between the mind of Christ and our minds, where in 1 Corinthians it says, Paul writes, we have the mind of Christ, well, then we have access to that those stores of knowledge and secret as well, and we have to ask for it. And the Holy Spirit, uh, in his grace, uh, often reveals that if we're willing to ask and listen. And mm -hmm. the a peace and the, the sense of God's love, of the Father's love that comes through that, I have found to be uh, comforting and compelling evidence for the existence of God. Um, you know, one thing that I've noticed is that charismatic Christians are often not involved with uh, apologetic defenses of Christianity. Mm -hmm. It's typically more the sacramental and the evangelical Christians who like to make a strong intellectual case for Christianity. And the charismatics are out there being all touchy-feeling. They're like, I don't need intellectual arguments. I just feel and know that God's there. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and they're right. And, and, and we in the sacramental and evangelical worlds are also right. But it's the coming together of all of these things that I think makes a very compelling case. And maybe you – okay, maybe in some absolute sense you can't 100 percent know – but I think you can get really, really close. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You can you can certainly get close enough to you know I mean, and and then you know as as much as you know, as much as in some ways I don't like Pascal's wager, you know there there's always that ultimate. And so what if you're wrong? <laughs> what are you losing? Okay. Because again, well, you you're going to die. <laughs> well, yes. 
Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but my understanding is that Pascal's wager is uniquely tied to Christianity and is a, basically an attempt to try to scare the hell out of you, literally. Um, that's not how I've uh, heard it presented. You know, the original presentation it was not it was not uh, called Pascal's wager by by the late uh, Father uh, Bill Cleary here in the uh, uh, Archdiocese of Indianapolis, but he presented it more or less this way. Um, so there is a, and I assume this is a somewhat a, a true story. I'm not certain. Uh, heart, I mean, this 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 homily was 30 years ago. Um, but it, but a, a newspaper reporter and an agnostic or atheist newspaper reporter is interviewing a priest, perhaps a monk, um, about you know it's it's I think it was a monk because you know it's very stark what he has given up for Christ. You know what yeah. he has given up for his faith, uh-huh. right? And so the guy asks him, well, aren't aren't you scared that you know if you've you know, you may have given up, you know, you may have spent your whole life on this thing that's not true. And of course, the monk, you know, turns to him and says, well, what if you're wrong and you've wasted eternity on something that isn't true um, or you've wasted eternity not, you know, believing in what is true? That mm-hmm. um, that's, yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the, I think, you know, Pascal's wager is more a sense of, you know, going, faring forth and hoping as hard as you can. I mean, and, and the original formulation of it, I, th- I think Pascal almost weakens it because he, he presents it. And this is again, this is a, I, I've read a, a resume of Pascal's words. I need to go dig them up for myself at some point. But, but that, you know, he phrased it as, well, you know, no matter how small the odds are, you know, if you, if you can calculate a finite odds, and of course this is the 17th century when they were rather um, taken with, you know, the fact that they could now calculate the likelihood of the outcome of games of chance, which mm-hmm. if you read the Three Musketeers, they spent a lot of time on things like games of chance and eating sausage. Um, but that's another <laughs> point. Um, that, uh, that, you know, no, if, if it's, you know, one in a trillion chance that uh, this is right, well, you know, heaven is infinity. So you're multiplying, you know, the payoff times the odds, you're still getting infinity. Hmm. Interesting. My my question though is, couldn't you use the logic of Pascal's wager for another belief system like Islam? Oh, as far as I know, it would work perfectly well for Islam, and that's where you would really run into um, difficulties. Is is this? It only it's only helpful if you've narrowed it down to one <laughs> one religion, one one thing that gives you the the promise that you believe, and you know, versus atheism or agnosticism, and you know, and materialism in particular. Right, right, yeah, yeah. That's been my that's been my hesitancy to use Pascal's wager in uh, in a debate or conversational sense because I'm like, well, a Muslim could 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 make the exact same case, and yeah, from an Islamic perspective, I'm Allah's probably going to send me to hell, but I also don't believe in the truthfulness of Islam. So, right, that's that's and that's the decision that you have to make. You know, what, once you're in that scenario, yeah, you you have to start. You're you're back to the question of well. Which of these testimonies do I believe? Mm, and why yeah. do I believe it? Right, right. Um, and, and and that's where I have had conversations with with agnostics or atheists who are just usually politely engaging me and talking discussing religion, is I mm-hmm. usually use the language, um, I think Christianity is the most likely to be true of the world's religions. Mm-hmm. And I use that kind of language and, and you can't ref- I mean it's 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 almost like it's difficult to refute. It's like, in my opinion, I think this is the strongest likelihood of being true. Mm-hmm. And it could be all wrong, but it is the most likely to be true. And that seems to satisfy people. Because mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not trying to prove Christianity, because I don't think you can. Um, right. But I think you can show extreme plausibility. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's, you, you yeah, the, uh, the whole question of, you know, people who reject testimony of things like, you know, miracles. We're talking about the charismatic movement, you know, talking about, you know, miraculous healings or uh, or other, I mean, other events. You know, I mean, there's there's a certain strain of people. Well, I, th- I think it was uh, Diderot um, or maybe D'Alembert back in the 18th century in the, you know, the Enlightenment. Well, we, we know what the laws of physics are, so we just shouldn't believe, you know, testimony like this no matter what, which is madly comical. From mm-hmm. a contemporary cons- perspective, to listen to an 18th century person say that they knew what the laws of physics were, it's a <laughs> riot. It's a laugh riot. 
Um, and a cautionary tale. I mean, that's the whole, I mean, that's the, the drama of the philosophy of science, really. I mean, it's, it's the whole, you know, the advent of 20th century physics and, and just, you know, standing, you know, you can still stand at it, look at it and gape and say, how is any of this true? You know, how, how is any of the strangeness of quantum physics? true? How is any of the strangeness of relativity actually true? Um, and what else? And then, of course, the lesson from that is, well, what else don't we know? Right. What else? What else do we do that we have evidence to believe, but it's actually just the limiting factor for something much, much stranger? <laughs> and this probably gets back to reconciling quantum mechanics and and uh, general relativity. Yeah, there there must be some reconciliation out there that, and and maybe it's string theory, maybe it's not. But yeah. my understanding is, even if it's string theory, there's still a lot of mysteries out there. Yeah, I mean that's that's almost the problem with string theory is that it it fits the old joke about the have you heard the you've heard the joke about the geologist the engineer and the geophysicist maybe you've heard it in a different form have you heard have you heard a joke in that go, go uh, ahead that and tell it like because I'll probably laugh <laughs> okay <laughs> so so there's there's a psychologist who comes in and poses the same question to all three of these professionals just to see what the difference in answers is so um you know she poses it to the engineer and the engineer comes in you know she she says what's two plus two so the engineer whips out a calculator and uh, or actually per, perhaps in the original joke, it was a slide rule. But, uh, you know, he comes out. It's well, it's three point nine, 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 six, nine. And she says, oh, that's 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 close enough. Thank you. <laughs> she calls in the geologist. The geologist stomps in, you know, puts his boots up on her desk and she asks him, what's two plus two? He says, well, I've been reading the literature on this subject and we've got a really tight constraint. It can't be less than three. <laughs> on the other hand i've been reading some other papers and you know we've been doing some field work and we're pretty sure it can't be more than six either so we're talking probably something in the four to four and a half range she's like all right thank you um <laughs> she calls in the geophysicist so the geophysicist comes in and uh she asks well what's two plus two so the geophysicist looks around the room very furtively leans up really close to her and whispers what do you want it to be? <laughs> <laughs> I have not heard that, but that's good. Yeah, that's uh, and the the context was a, a course on uh, deep earth geophysics, and you know, what is the viscosity of the uh, of the uh, Earth's uh, mantle transition zone? Is it ten <laughs> to the twentieth or ten to the twenty second? <laughs> yeah, close enough. Either one. If we knew it by a factor of a hundred, we would be we'd have a something. Yeah. That, that I had a very similar conversation, but for real and seriously, uh, this last week at the meeting of the American Geophysical Union (AGU) in Washington, yeah, Twenty-three thousand yeah, yeah. geoscientists all converged oh my gosh. in Washington D.C. And and what what city was it in this year? It was in it was in D.C. It was in D.C. So you yeah. Had, oh yeah you just you just you had to drove up or took the train or something. Uh, I, I waited through traffic to get there. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I uh, and I was have a colleague at UCLA, and uh, uh, we, we've actually corresponded over email and talked on the phone a lot. But this is the first time we met in person, mm -hmm. and um, and we were talking about the results of an experiment we've been doing, a, a geological experiment on the movement of sand dune uh, of sand grains on Titan. And I, I said what our experiment said it could be, and he's and he looked bothered. He's like, you know, we've been doing some work, and we think it could be, you know, two to three times larger than that. And I just throw up my hands, like, oh, well, it's all the same order of magnitude. It's fine. <laughs> and he said, that is such a geologist response. <laughs> exactly. Because he's more of a yes. physicist. Oh, yeah. We're, we know by a factor of two, we're golden. We're Actually, golden. Actually, worse than that. He said, he didn't just say that. He's like, that's such a planetary geologist response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he must not talk to a lot of uh, deep earth uh, geochemists or geophysicists then. Yes, but not. Uh, that, that would be the other. Uh, of course, that was the relevant, uh, that was the relevant reference. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but you know, in, in this particular experiment, factor of two or three, yeah, it's still telling us something about Saturn's moon Titan, so I'm fine with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so what is two plus two? Yeah, it's definitely it's it can't be less than three, and it's probably not greater than six, and anywhere in there is fine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's 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 the uh, that's that's where the sausage is made, people. <laughs> just, just think of that when you're listening to people talk about basically anything in geoscience. This is uh, this is the level of uh, uncertainty we're dealing with. Yep, yep. And what and what's great is that you can say, well, you know, it's not wrong. That's right. <laughs> it's consistent right it is, with the evidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Consistent with the evidence is the best we can do. Yep. Uh, and speaking and, of that, like the the evidence <laughs> as regards Jesus' resurrection and ascension, uh, mm -hmm. that that claim is consistent with the evidence that no one has ever produced his body. No one right. has claimed to have his body. Right. Right. That yeah, that that is the fascinating thing. It doesn't I mean, prove that he resurrected and ascended to heaven, but the evidence is consistent. Right. There are certainly ways to get rid of bodies, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I, uh, and then, then the whole, you know, the testimony of how many people, you know, who must have known about the events and were right. willing to die for that interpretation of it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's that's um, it's I mean, it, if you've already made up your mind, of course, we're not going to change it. But right. that's that's the question. And then and then God has ways of, uh, of confronting people with uh, things that uh cause them to reopen the subject quite unexpectedly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's that's what it really is it's uh, ultimately it comes to god sometimes we can serve as the people who you know convey that opportunity but it's always serving it's not uh it's not like we can force it ourselves right i mean as paul writes to in paul i don't remember which which epistle it was in but he says you know you can cultivate you can plant the seed but it's ultimately god that makes the seed grow and talking about the seeds of the gospel right. in people's lives um, right but it's yeah. God through the Holy Spirit. I plant Apollos watered. I think it's the Corinthians, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Corinthians is the epistle I know the best because in 11th grade in high school, I was a Bible quizzer and we quizzed over 1 Corinthians. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, and my mom, just texted, my mom just texted me and said that she threw out my trophies. <laughs> I said that's fine. <laughs> Oops. I no, hate that's when that fine. Yeah. You know, they've been in the basement for... <laughs> <laughs> over a de well over a decade at this point yeah yeah exactly oh uh, i i shudder to think uh, i still have some of my uh, seventh grade uh, math competition trophies down there um they, <laughs> in their defense they could also be used as uh, door stops but uh you know they're they're hey. nice triangular shaped you could you could wedge a door open with them if you wanted to you don't really need six of them but you're a geologist um, he's a rock that's right well yeah i got plenty of those yeah there's no shortage of those well, I mean, what's <laughs> we could go on forever. That's the problem when we, we start talking shop. You can start talking about the doorstop that turned out to be the oldest rock uh, ever dated, at least at that point in history. <laughs> That's funny, yeah. You remember that yeah. story? I think it's somewhere, something up in Canada. There was a piece of uh, Amet Sock Nice or something like that. Oh, yeah. Nice. I wonder how old that is. <laughs> <laughs> We've been keeping the door open with it for ages, but no one's ever agitated yeah, it. That's right. No one, no one ever decided they wanted to go find some Zircons in it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Oh, well, I, I really appreciate you making the time. I know you're, uh, you're a really busy uh, fellow, and uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, Paul, I really enjoyed the interview. Thanks for your interest. And yeah, this was, you know, I, I do a number of interviews throughout the year on, on science issues, but it's really refreshing to get to bring uh, my faith in Christ into this as well. Yeah. Is there anything you want me to put into the liner notes or do you want to say out into the, into the feed here of uh, pe where people can uh, find maybe some of your musings on, on whether it's your pure science or whether it's uh, some of the faith and science issues we were talking about? Well, on Twitter, I tweet at nasaman 58 Mm -hmm. uh, the 58 is a reference to 1958, the year NASA was created, as a result go. of the 1957 National Aeronautics and Space Act that mm -hmm. President Eisenhower signed into law to make the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, mm -hmm. which is a complete departure from my talking about my Twitter account, NASA Man 58, where I tend to tweet about science and faith. Mm -hmm. Although lately it's been mostly on science and space exploration. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, as we were talking about, there's been a lot of it to tweet about. So. Yeah, there has been. Okay. All right. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs>